Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Oplane podcast, where every week we cover some aspect of the aviation industry in the company of those that know best about it. But first of all, allow me a quick reminder that you can find all episodes of this podcast, as well as many other interesting stories about aviation, on our website, allplane.tv. That's A L P L A N E dot. Today we are traveling to the largest country in the world, a place where, as you might imagine, commercial aviation is absolutely essential and also is a place that has played, and up to a degree continues to play, a very significant role in the development of new aircraft types. I am talking, of course, about Russia. When it comes to airlines, I can say a lot has changed since the messy times that followed the downfall of the Soviet Union. Today, Russia is quite a dynamic air travel market, has even managed to see some segments grow during the COVID pandemic, with whole categories like low-cost and regional airlines driving most of the action. So I have invited Boris Rybak, one of the experts that knows best the Russian airline market. Boris is the founder and CEO of Infomos Consulting and ATO Events, the group of companies that organizes the largest airline conferences in Russia and in the Russian-speaking world, such as MRO Russia, Wings of the Future, Digital Aviation and Travel, Airport of the Future, and Aircraft and Lease Russia and CAS. Boris also manages several publications about the aviation industry, among them Russia Aviation Insider, which is published in English. So we talked with Boris for over one hour about all these and other topics relevant to the Russian aviation industry, which I hope will give you a good overview of what's going on in this huge country. So, without further ado, let me introduce you our guest today. Hello, Boris. How are you? Hello, Miguel. I am fine. Thank you. I'm very happy to have you here today because uh, we're going to talk about one of the most exciting commercial aviation markets in the world, which is Russia. And you are a big expert in the Russian market because you manage the media and events company that organizes the largest and most important aviation conferences in Russia. I'm going to ask you now to explain a little bit about this as well as some uh, media that also cover the aviation, the Russian aviation industry in depth. So can you tell us a bit more about yourself and about the conferences you organize so that we can set up the context? Okay. Thank you again for the introduction. My name is Boris Rybak. I'm a former aircraft designer. Since early 90s, we've got a big interest in emerging Russian airline market and been heavily involved in developing independent Russian airlines. Since early 90s, we've got information services called, jointly called Air Transport Observer, monthly magazine published jointly with U.S. Aviation Week and Space Technology, and eventually spread more information and consultancy services. Uh, so to make it short, we are deeply involved in Russian airline business, airports, uh, MRO services and everything which relates to civil aviation. 
just for the for the international audience, I would like to comment that one of the publications you have uh, is a very interesting and useful source about Russian aviation, and it's called the Russian Aviation Insider. I'm going to post a link on the show notes. That's a web portal in English where you can find lots of information about the latest developments in the Russian and not only Russia, but also all the, all the countries around Russia, like Kazakhstan and Caucasus, etc., uh, all in one website. That's one of the media platforms that you run. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, we are trying to cover all former Soviet Union republics and uh, all former Eastern Bloc countries. Shortly speaking, all Russian-speaking aviation area. Mm -hmm. And you also run uh, a number of conferences that I've got the chance to attend a few times. The largest, I don't know if it's the largest, but the one that covers all aspects of uh, aviation in, in Russia and neighboring countries is called the Wings of the Future. It's happening in a few days' time, actually. I think in November. And, That's true, yeah. And you also run a few others, like uh, MRO Russia, Digital Aviation. You also run an airports conference. Those are a meeting point for professionals in, in the Russian-speaking country. Actually, biggest by numbers, by far biggest, is uh, MRO Russia and CIS. It's an exhibition and conference. We've got typically 1,200 delegates and 100 exhibitors from 70 countries. So actually, in our part of the world, uh, it's uh, the biggest MRO conference. Winds of the Future is uh, more foresight and uh, attempt to understand how things will develop in near and midterm future. Uh, this conference is uh, also pretty much about transportation, but still covers issues like aircraft industry, uh, travel industry, uh, broader, broader thing for younger audience, I would say. Very much supported by major uh, aircraft manufacturers like Airbus, uh, Rolls-Royce, avionics manufacturers, and uh, startups uh, which deal with uh, city mobility and things like that. So anybody welcome. Registration is on site, easy accessible now. When, when is the next edition? It's in, in a few days time, right? Yeah, it's 11th and 12th of November. Okay, so I'm gonna post a link as well um, to this. I'm, I'm still not sure when, uh, when this podcast is gonna be published as we okay. have this, conf uh, this uh, conference call now. Uh, to record the podcast, but certainly before that date. So people interested in, in Russian aviation will, will find the link there. Yeah, so actually Russia is uh, quite an interesting part of the world when it comes to aviation because it's, it's got its own dynamics. It's, it's, a, it's a region unto, its, unto itself. And I, I would like to start by discussing a little bit the, the general, general landscape in the Russian commercial aviation market. Um, we are talking about a market that in, in normal times, this year is going to be a bit different, but in normal times in 2019, it was about 220 million passengers in Russia. I'm talking about Russia only now. About, I think 60% of them are domestic, if I'm Correct. That's obviously because it's a, such a huge, it's a huge market, a huge, huge country in terms of, of land. And also it's a growing market. I mean, in the last few years, 
we have seen a number of developments like the the growth of a low cost airline segment we have seen also aeroflot become um, a prime carrier internationally a number of other carriers to the market and we we can talk about this later but i think one of the next maybe one of the next expected developments will be the development of the regional air transport inside russia connecting all the all the secondary cities and, and third tier cities between themselves what can you tell us about the current moment the, the russian market is going through and of course the the covid pandemic this year of course that's that's another important factor i would say uh, it's decisive factor right now in 2019 uh, uh, russian civil aviation russian airlines actually surpassed numbers of passengers and the cargo carried for the best years of uh, soviet union and it's slightly surprising but uh, during last almost 20 years starting from 2001 russian civil aviation is growing faster than uh, world's average and typically with a double digit increase annually which was uh, slightly surprising for analysis because it didn't correlate to gdp as it should be in uh, established market well well developed and established market the only explanation is that uh, starting with very low mobility for the, the country in early 90s people are willing to travel for leisure and business i must say if i can stop you here one second i must say in the soviet times aeroflot was a huge airline or used to be i think the largest airline in the world flying everything from helicopters to small commuter planes all the way to international long haul routes and then of course uh, there was the 90s there was a very difficult time and perhaps the 90s is also when russian aviation got a bit of a bad reputation in some ways because it it was a it was a, a very very complex time and and there were a number of incidents on those years can we say this period is finally over so right now flying in russia it's quite a you know it's a very competitive market you have uh, lots of very competitive airlines that fly modern fleets um how would you describe this this current landscape first of all you are absolutely right uh, about travel times in in 90s and there were actually very bad very black years during this period with a number of uh, fatal accidents it was a, a very serious concern for all professionals here unfortunately we cannot say yet that this uh, situation finally uh, changed we had so some problems with flight safety in 2010 and uh, 11 and 12 we've got this unfortunate accident with sukhoi superjet 2 years ago however we've got a number of airlines which demonstrate very quality services and very high level of flight safety and general uh, generally it's very important to mention that during these last 20 years or 30 years russian aviation actually reinvented itself let me explain in soviet times eastern bloc countries and former soviet union lived in isolation from the rest of the world international aviation developed in certain way for example 
universal working language was and still is English language. And it doesn't matter are you flying in Indonesia or the United States or African countries, you expect that uh, anybody can speak reasonable English language. In Soviet Union and Eastern Bloc countries, universal aviation language was Russian language. Transition period in the 90s was not only change from Soviet-built equipment and aircraft and helicopters, but also changed the whole system of maintaining aircraft, operating aircraft. It was not easy, actually. All aircraft are very similar, which is quite natural. But still, there are a lot of small and very important differences, also in philosophy of designing aircraft. Western-built aircraft are quite different in certain aspects from Soviet Union-designed aircraft. So this transition wasn't easy, but it happened now. And, uh, you know, it could be amazing. In I would say in 1995, even large Siberian airline like UTR has got just a dozen of people who can speak English and employing 15,000. Now almost everybody can speak English. And, uh, and some so, also very uh, forward-looking professionals as well. I can... I can say because I know some of them, and yeah. and they they uh, they are not just UTR but other Russian airlines have uh, developed very interesting yeah all technological of them. initiatives true. yeah uh, uh, applications some other interesting stuff I can uh, yeah I will put some links to to some of these projects that I've covered in in the site things like payments with cryptocurrency uh, a blockchain uh, for refueling uh, there there's lots of different very advanced initiatives taking place right now in in the Russian market and most of them are, are the initiative of the airline yeah that's true and another huge change happened with airports People who are older potentially could remember old uh, Soviet airports, especially degrading during last years of Soviet Union and first years of uh, independent Russia. And it was uh, no, not very pleasant places, including gateway, international gateway to the country, Sheremetyevo Airport. Today we've got pretty modern facilities in most of uh, large cities and Moscow and St. Petersburg are taking a lead in that. Moscow airports uh, dramatically changed uh, during the last 10-15 years, getting much more comfortable and receiving good ranking in international ratings. And jointly with the whole system, they are growing in terms of uh, traffic every year. Uh, Sheremetyo a couple of times during the last five years was announced fastest fastest growing European airport in its category of large airports. So uh, you are absolutely right. Technology advancements with Russian airlines and airports are quite impressive. Yeah, and I can say I have traveled to, uh, I have seen some of the old airports, there's still a few in some in the regions mainly, and some of the new airports, and it's like two different planets. I mean, absolutely. you have, you have a still absolutely. both existing in the system but i think in the, the world cup in 2018 that, that was a big there was a big uh, renewal initiative lots of investment going into into these new airports absolutely that's right so if you had to explain the structure of the 
Russian commercial aviation uh, market to someone that doesn't know anything about it. How would you start? I, I would say there is a, a big group, which is Aeroflot. Then there's a, a, a group of large private companies that like S7, which is now the largest, I think right now because of the effects of the pandemic and, the, and the, the lack of international connections. I think S7 became the largest airline in Russia. That's correct. Aeroflot Group is still larger as a group, but as an individual airline brand, uh, S7 now it's number one carrier. Um, you have other carriers like UTR, Ural, and then a whole range of regional and local carriers. Some, some leisure-oriented carriers. That's also quite a big market of uh, all the Russian people going to warm places to spend their holiday. That's uh, also, uh, there's four or five specialized carriers in this market. How would you describe this market? You quite uh, correctly describe the whole configuration. So it's, uh, after very long struggle with the strategies, Aeroflot finally has got what I think is uh, very reasonable and very promising strategy dealing with uh, three brands Aeroflot like intercontinental first class luxury airline low-cost carrier which is a basis for future growth it's low-cost carrier called Padeda which is going to operate most of Aeroflot domestic flights and uh, short and mid-haul international flights using narrow body fleet of uh, Boeing 737. And by the way, this first class Aeroflot airline, it looks like it will be all Airbus airline operating mostly A350 aircraft and uh, A320 family, mostly A A321. Yeah, actually, they, there was this uh, news story uh, quite recently, and I was quite surprised because until now, Aeroflot had a kind of a dual fleet Correct. strategy mm -hmm. with both Boeing and Airbus. And then they, they were also, they had an, an order for Russian-made future MS-21 airliner. They had also a significant number of uh, super jets, but it seems that now it's been decided that there's going to be a complete realignment of all the airlines in the Aeroflot group. So as you mentioned, Aeroflot to become Airbus only, and the Russian-made jets are going to go to another subsidiary called Russia. It's going to be focusing on mainly on the domestic market and also from uh, on some bases on uh, outside Moscow, so in St. Petersburg and I think other regional, other regional bases. And then you have the low-cost airline, that in principle it's going to get all the 737s from Aeroflot, but I read that they might actually transition to Airbus in the medium term. Uh, it's not certain, and uh, I understand they are just underway in uh, making assessment of what type of uh, narrow bodies they are going to concentrate in future. From the, the news story that explained this, it looked like they were trying to do like Wither in um, in Europe with the A321neos and get lots of capacity there with with those yeah it's good a good aircraft and uh, capacity wise it's uh, also very good and so we will see and uh, I, I think uh, Pabeda should decide uh, and define its fleet strategy by the end of this year 
And naturally, because of pandemic, they've got enough time to think about what they actually want to have. So uh, we've got this uh, uh, group Aeroflot, which yeah. is uh, eventually will dominate uh, Russian uh, airline market. And there are two other airlines as well that we haven't, well, I mentioned it briefly. But yeah, actually, actually three. Three yeah. uh, private uh, passenger airline and one cargo airline, which makes four. Mm -hmm. And uh, three uh, Urals and Siberian airlines. Uh, Ural airlines naturally based in Yekaterinburg in Urals mountains. UTR is uh, based and serving West Siberia. And S7 serving Moscow market and uh, Novosibirsk, Siberian market. Although we must say that all of these airlines also serve the, the large, very large market, which is Moscow. So all of them have big That's bases. And but uh, for our further uh, discussion, it's important that they've got a very strong foothold in certain areas which are actually far away from Moscow. True. They have origins in each of them in, in, different, in different cities. Actually, many of these airlines that are now private and they are competitors to Aeroflot, they, they started as parts of the old Soviet Aeroflot that operated in the regions, I think, right? And, and, then, yeah. and then they, when the Soviet Union disappeared, Aeroflot was broken in many different, of course, the, there was the, the main line Aeroflot uh, remained, but many of the different regional units were broken and, and they were um, taken over by private investors that then developed them into what are now all these other airlines, private airlines that operate in different strongholds, to call it some way, across Russia. And also in Aeroflot Group, there's another interesting airline, uh, which is the Far East, Aurora that is based in the part of Russia that it's on the Pacific coast. It's partly owned by Aeroflot and I think partly owned by the regional government. And it's basically oriented towards Asia. You have this uh, airline, which is 11 time zones away from Moscow. It gives you an idea. Operationally, uh, it, it has to operate a separate entity because it, it's basically there's very little overlap time-wise. And it flies uh, in the region in the far east of Russia, but also going to Korea, going to Japan, um, to all the countries nearby. Uh, what's going to happen there? Because I read that Aeroflot wanted to divest from that airline and, and maybe there was a new airline being created to increase air service in that part of Russia. A new Aeroflot strategy doesn't include this airline in further development and Aeroflot made it absolutely clear that they would like to leave it alone. Russian government has got a plan to develop what they call Far East Airline. There were discussions whether it should be new startup or should be an alliance union of existing airlines Meetings and talks about that are held uh, virtually every week. And the uh, basic scenario is to have two airlines from Yakutia, Aurora from Sakhalin, and airline from Khabarovsk, another large city in Russian Far East, and organize a sort of alliance, they call it union, of airlines with a joint marketing strategy, with joint and coordinating fair policies 
but so far it's not clear who will have uh, decisive stakes in this airline or this union. Mm-hmm. And actually all three major regions, Yakutia, Khabarovsk and uh, Sakhalin, are actually willing to have control over this union, which is not, not feasible actually. Somebody uh, should compromise these ambitions and it's uh, fully underway and hopefully by next high season, next spring, they will have some workable uh, organization. I mean joint organization. All okay. these airlines are operating individually and uh, I would say have pretty good performance. And there is also Rasia, which is another subsidiary of Aeroflot that is mostly focused on, on domestic market. It has some, some international flights as well. What's interesting is that it seems that it's going to get a Russian-made fleet as soon as the MS-21 becomes available. It's going to get a relatively large number of them. It's going to be flying mostly inside Russia. That's correct. And uh, the role of this airline uh, is mostly a uh, to promote socially important uh, issues, help government to implement industrial policy. Historically, this airline during last uh, several years was responsible for providing connectivity between Central Russia and Russian Far East, flying between Moscow and St. Petersburg and cities on, as you uh, said, Pacific coast of Russia. Peculiarity of this operation was, and still is, they are heavily subsidized by government and they've got so-called flat fares. No matter when are you flying, no matter what's going on on the market, it's a flat fare and I would say very low. In real, real terms, it's something like $300 return flight from Moscow to uh, Vladivostok. Yes, it's, I remember. I, I, did, yeah. I did fly actually to, to Sakhalin once mm-hmm. from Moscow in the winter, which is not the high season. But still, I think it cost me like, yeah, something like $300 uh, return. Uh, yeah, is- and uh, I, I suspect that you are not eligible Ah. For these, uh, <laughs> okay. Well, low, I... low fares because it's mostly for young people and pensioners. So there are certain categories who well, can I, enjoy. I, I found it on on the. I don't remember if it was the the airline website or it was some of Expedia or some of these uh, searches. Anyway, it's very cheap. And it's eleven hour an eleven hour flight or ten hour flight, so it's it's like flying from from Europe to California more or less. And uh, <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. But uh, government uh, trying to stimulate people to uh, move more between Central Russia and the Pacific coast, and uh, they're doing that. They're flying other subsidized routes. So idea that this airline would be a launch customer and uh, I would say uh, operational trial ground for new types of Russian designed and Russian built aircraft looks pretty much logical. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Historically, St. Petersburg Aviation Group, which included airport and airline, which uh, was called Pulkova at that time, 
was very fond of operating Soviet builder. They were actually most enthusiastic about keeping SU, uh, not, uh, not SU, uh, Tupolev TU-154s as long mm -hmm. as they potentially can. And they, they loved Soviet aircraft. So it's very natural for them to be a launch part for for new Russian aircraft. They've got very strong maintenance and engineering facilities in St. Petersburg, and they've got a lot of qualified engineers in this area. Mm -hmm. So it yeah. looks very good. Actually, in former Soviet Union times, we've got two sim similar sites for new Soviet build aircraft. One was Vnukovo in Moscow, and another was Pulkovo in St. Petersburg. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it, it's pretty much logical. Yeah, Nukovok, which is today, it's the third largest airport in Moscow and is a base for, for the low-cost airline Pavieda that we mentioned. And that, that's actually a good prop for the, for the next topic I wanted to introduce, and that's the development of the low-cost airline sector in uh, Russia, which it's uh, relatively new and actually i must say i had the chance to participate in in the launch of the the previous iteration of pabeda which was called dobroliot at the time so it's a it's a project i i know well and i have seen that in the last few years it's been growing a lot and i was reading now some statistics even in the time of coronavirus the Pavieda has kept growing like crazy. I've seen some numbers in September. It grew by 17% compared to the previous year, which is, is quite amazing. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, actually, it's a fourth or third uh, attempt to develop a low-cost airline in Russia. Uh, historically, the first one was a small company called... I think there was... Yeah, there was Avianova, right? And, yeah, and yeah, part of uh, another si Siberian I initiative from mm -hmm. Krasnoyarsk. Didn't live long. Another one was Avianova, start up with international investors. They existed for a couple of years without any any real success. Then it was short-lived Dabralot, and finally everything was in place with the airline called Padeda. Mm -hmm. which is uh, claimed to be a complete success by Aeroflot Group. You can see figures. And uh, actually, it's, it's uh, regardless certain controversy, I would say, which is uh, typical for LCCs all around the globe. Pabeda is loved by Russian people, and they vote, vote for this airline paying rubles <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and dollars. and. Uh, you know, success of any low-cost airline is in 100% load factor. If you can have your planes flying, I would say, 12, 13 hours a day, fully loaded with passengers, you've got the chance to, to be uh, successful. Mm -hmm. If you don't have these two components, very high utilization rate, and Padera has got uh, a sort of records for Boeing 737's operations in terms of uh, average uh, daily or monthly flight hours. So you've got extremely high utilization rate of the aircraft and you've got low commercial load factor approaching 100%. Then yeah. you can keep uh, fares pretty low. 
Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's actually there is no chance. Yeah, and I must say that Pobeda operates a pure low-cost model, even like ultra-low-cost in some ways. So you you pay, for example, to to get a, uh, not only the, the the bag that goes on the hold, but if you want to bring cabin baggage, you need to pay for it. it it's not selling any food on board, which that's a bit different from other low-cost airlines uh, you find in Europe. And but it's uh, yeah it's it's very uh, bare bones operation but very efficient and it seems that it's going it's going well for them. I think it it helps that in Russia the distances are so large and until now pretty much the alternative for many people was actually to take the train or the bus that can mean like spending days moving around. Uh, so that that's that's a big difference. But we we can say up to what point can we say that. Although there are not so many pure low-cost airlines in Russia, in some parts of the country, in some routes, you have very intense competition. I mean, you can fly relatively cheap on, on some of the main segments because there's maybe you can find like four or five airlines flying at the same time on a, on a specific route, like, I don't know, Moscow to Sochi, for example, or some of these areas. So it, the, the price competition is quite intense. You know, partly uh, absence of many low-cost airlines in Russia can be explained by the fact that most of Russian airlines has got what we call hybrid model. They, they've got significant part of their tickets sold for very low price comparable to low-cost airlines. And at the same time, they've got business class in their aircraft configuration and they've got higher classes like economy premium or something, some equivalent of that. So this is very popular model for, for Russian airlines. And at certain moments, Siberia and UTR are competing with Pabeda in very efficient way, I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one of the things that has happened during this crisis of COVID is actually the, there's been a focus on the domestic market. Uh, right now, in Russia, it's pretty much closed. Uh, not, not completely closed, but, but there are serious limitations of, on who can enter the country. So that means that basically the, the, international, the international market that was the main business for Aeroflot, for example, has pretty much disappeared. But the airlines are deploying capacity in the domestic market. So you have airlines like S7, Pavieda, UTR that are, yeah, they are operating on these internal routes. And actually, I have been checking the numbers. And in September, for example, the domestic market grew by nearly 7%, 6.8% of growth in terms of number of passengers, which is quite impressive considering that everywhere people are flying less. And the total market in Russia decreased by nearly 32%, 31.7%. That's mostly because of the international, international flights. So yeah, you have even six airlines. Um, I'm just checking the numbers from, from uh, Russian Aviation Insider now, but you have six airlines that managed to increase the number of passengers uh, compared to 2019. Again, quite impressive. It's uh, yeah. It seems that it seems that the people in Russia right now, despite the crisis, continue to fly just as before, even more. It's very much surprising, but uh, 
uh, it's actual real figures. So, <laughs> so we've got no doubt about that. It's not easy to explain the reasons behind that. The only thing is clear that we've, right now we've got extremely low fares. And uh, that means that uh, airlines definitely has got no, not as much revenue as they would have in normal, normal situation. So, but figures are here and uh, it's impossible to argue about that. And one of the airlines, well, actually, because of this situation, the airline, as we mentioned earlier, the airline that now is the largest carrier in Russia, it's another interesting airline, which is S7, which it's known because of its uh, very bright green aircraft. Uh, <laughs> it's also a very interesting airline because actually its owner, I heard sometimes some comparisons with Richard Branson. I don't know up to what point that's the case or not. But it's, um, yeah, it's very uh, entrepreneurial business. He was even investing in space tourism activities. Also, it's an airline that has always been very innovative when it comes to adopting new technologies. So what, ca what else can you tell us about S7? Is it likely it's going to continue holding this number one spot in the Russian market? Good question. Uh, look, if international uh, travel will recover, Airflot definitely will take over. If not, if not, uh, I, I'm not actually sure because uh, S7 is definitely one of the most efficient airlines, not only in Russia, but for, I would say, one of the most efficient and best uh, managed airline in the world. Would you define it as a hybrid airline? I mean, it, it operates, it's not a low cost airline, but it's not like super expensive either. Uh, no, no, no. It's what we call hybrid model. First of all, they focused on typically younger audience than typical legacy airlines. S7 Airlines is all about future. The young people like it and it's uh, actually fun to play and uh, fun to fly. They, they've got very well advanced apps for mobile devices and they've got a very friendly website. The, the whole passenger experience is, is very good. And operationally, they are extremely efficient. They, they've got extremely high utilization rate for the aircraft. They've got very flexible fare policies. They, they are managed in very modern way, I would say. Yeah, it's very good airline from, from any side. Again, you know, it's a service market. If you are good people like you and willing to buy your services, if, if you are not that good, people are not willing to buy your services, mm -hmm. no matter how cheap it is or, or whatever. Success of a seven airline is a sort of reward for what they've been doing for last five or six years. Getting through very complicated times uh, when buying power of Russian passengers declined dramatically after 2014. And nevertheless, they provided transportation. They are very strong in, in Siberia, both parts, Western Siberia and Eastern Siberia. They've got operational bases in Novosibirsk and Irkutsk, and they, it's their home, home bases. They are not visitors in Novosibirsk. They are actually based over there. 
they've got huge uh, maintenance facilities over there as well. So uh, actually this transformation to cover more routes inside Russia was relatively easy for them because they are very strong in Moscow for Moscow market, but it's not the only market they are operating. Mm -hmm. city is very strong and very important. And actually, that, that's another interesting market that now it's been the object of uh, much talk in, in Russian aviation. I think it's also a, a development priority for the government. It's the regional market because uh, there are many, many uh, flights in Russia go through Moscow and St. Petersburg. But I think now we are starting to see some other carriers deploying capacity to link all these secondary and, and third tier cities between themselves, a bit like what has happened in, in Europe, for example, where you have got a development of many city pairs that seem, seemed a bit unlikely just a few years ago, uh, but the overall growth of the market has made possible and the right, the right product, the right prices has, has made it possible for many, many of these regional markets to emerge. And here we have two, well, we have two players that are already well established and, and already for quite a few years, UTR and Ural. Also, there is another carrier, Azimut in South Russia, that it's actually one of the carriers that has been growing during this crisis. And I think there are other carriers as well that have a project to develop this, this regional segment of the market. What do you think are the perspectives here? It's extremely complicated. Uh, as we all know, regional transportation is uh, natural uh, loss generator. It's extremely difficult to meet ends when you are regional operator. It's, it's true for all, all countries, global markets, uh, whatever. However, right now, the whole world aviation and Russian aviation is actually experiencing transition between hub and spike model, which was developed in the United States in early 70s and successfully used by actually all countries for, uh, I would say, almost 50 years. But till recently, this hub model started to lose their attractiveness to, to the airlines. And as you correctly mentioned, flights between city pairs is getting more and more popular. In that respect, it's interesting transformation which give a chance to regional airlines to be viable independent operators of a regional route. We are seeing this process right now in the United States, in Europe, and in Russia as well. You politely said that many flights in Russia are tied to Moscow or St. Petersburg. In reality, these two cities contribute more than 80% of all traffic. It's wow, not 80%. Many. It's, wow. Yeah, it's virtually all. Now airlines like S7 and UTA developing city pairs inside Russia and startups like Azimut are doing actually the same. They are simply serving different regions. For uh, some historical reasons, south of central Russia was left without any own airline. And uh, naturally that Moscow-based airlines like Airflot, Pabeda and S7, just trying to take a cream of this pie and uh, serving only high intense routes. 
and they were absolutely not interested in developing intra-region route. And uh, on the other side, this Azimut airline, which based on south of central Russia, naturally is interested to develop its own home region first and then go to Moscow. So similar situation is in certain parts of Siberia. And you mentioned Russian Pacific coast and or Russian Far East, as we call it. Absolutely the same situation. They need local regional airlines, which will concentrate on certain uh, regional markets. So <laughs> it goes like that. And uh, we've got a couple of uh, pretty well-established regional airlines in central Russia. We've got three or four of them in Siberia. And hopefully, with governmental support for this regional development, they will be able not only to survive and uh, overcome this COVID-19 crisis, but uh, establish themselves as a permanent place on regional markets. Mm -hmm. And do you see any role for foreign airlines, and especially the low-cost foreign airlines, to play a role in, in this regional traffic development? Because we have seen recently, for example, uh, Wizzair launched a base in St. Petersburg that is mostly focused on international flight. But maybe, I don't know, maybe there's a, a, another, another vector for development for Russia's regional, regional airports, particularly in the European part of Russia, to get more connections to the, let's say, the, the, all the European low-cost bases. I don't know if, uh, I think Ryanair had some project as well. To, to get into the Russian market, I, I would need to check that. But EasyJet uh, had, was in the market for some time. I think then they, they exit the market. Do you see the, any chances here in uh, international low-cost connectivity? Yes, of course. And, uh, let me explain. It's extremely interesting and extremely sensitive area. Very, very unfortunately, Russia and European Union failed to sign any modern type of uh, air traffic agreement. And uh, right now, uh, relations between European Union and Russia in air transport area are still governed by bilateral air traffic agreements with each individual member of European Union. 27 different agreements, and they are seriously different. But basically, this type of air traffic agreement is based on parity. So to make it simple, it defines number of seats from each side, and it should be equal. Number of cities served should be equal. Everything should be equal. Uh, it's very obsolete system, which doesn't exist in Europe for already 20 years. It's a huge limitation for developing international air traffic. St. Petersburg uh, city government and uh, Polkova management somehow managed to receive this permission for, it's called uh, Seventh Freedom of Air uh -huh. Right. So they have a special, kind of a special regime where they can... Yeah, it's not special. It's a, it's in international aviation, we've got something like actually eight levels of uh, air freedom. So seventh freedom is uh, where you can fly between two countries, which is not country of your registration. Um, 
that's why uh, visa which is uh, registered as far as i understand in england uh, i'm not sure or in, or in, in hungary in I'm, I'm not sh I, I'm, I'm not i'm not sure but in any case they can be based in san Petersburg and flight to france and italy which is definitely not where they base. russian airlines has got no similar rights which would be uh, i would say that aeroflot or s7 will be based in alicante and fly from alicante to nice and to london that would be equivalent of this uh, seventh uh, freedom of air but can they fly inside Russia? So Weaver could theoretically launch. No, no. Okay. It would be it's it called cabotage freedom, a freedom of uh, air, and it's not uh, allowed. And you know, it's the whole system is introduced in Saint Petersburg right now. To put it simple, it's a huge discrimination of Russian airlines. That's why Weaver and potentially Ryanair has got limitation to fly to cities in Europe which are not served by Russian airlines and located at distance more than 200 kilometers from points served by Russian airlines. So uh, it's a bit urgently system, but I would say that it will provide a significant boost of low-cost international traffic in our part of the world. We all know when Ryanair or EasyJet or Vizier goes to certain location, traffic is boosted. That happened in, in cities which were tried by large legacy airlines. They tried to fly to, to cities like Dresden, Bratislava, or other relatively small locations in Europe and failed all the time. When Ryanair or EasyJet goes to cities like that, traffic is boost and yeah. airport are airports are recovering so the in that respect they are, are, are they're probably the most efficient stimulus for for everybody for starting from city governments and ending by big legacy airlines to develop traffic mm -hmm. so so uh, so it's extremely important and hopefully st petersburg is actually not developing as fast as the rest of Russian aviation market will have some boost. And actually, it was idea behind this decision. They desperately trying to increase their traffic. Yeah. And uh, honestly, honestly, it's almost impossible task to do when you've got fantastic airport and fantastic airline based 150 kilometers out of you. In Helsinki, when you've got the major Russian hubs just 800 kilometers between you, it's extremely difficult to develop any traffic because you know Helsinki and you know Finnair. It's brilliant. It's a, it's a great, great, for transfer traffic. Um, uh, Helsinki Airport is, is a great airport as well. Yeah. It's very yeah. Yeah. I, I've been talking to many of my friends in St. Petersburg and they told me we haven't been in Pulko for decades. Mm. Just jump in your car, go to Helsinki, fly anywhere. Uh, but the thing is, St. Petersburg is, is a great tourist destination. And that's actually one of the, the next topic I wanted to introduce is, is how how this actually this pandemic, it's uh, with the closed borders, is uh, making many people holiday 
inside Russia stimulating all this uh, traffic to tourist destinations inside Russia that are often overlooked because many many people in in Moscow for example they they tend to holiday uh, when they have some free days maybe they go to Europe or the people that can afford it of course they they go to to places like uh, I don't know London Paris or, or Nice or Italy Barcelona and Barcelona of course yeah 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 <laughs> yeah the flight is always full yeah and we go to Barcelona and and other people other people that um, more on the on the on the beach tourism side they go to to Egypt or Turkey on on packages so now most of these people are now discovering Russian um, tourist destinations and I guess that eventually some of this traffic might actually stay because people are you know they, they're discovering uh, all these national parks and all these all these places in siberia altai st petersburg as a city do you think this tourism traffic in russia what's the perspective that you see for it i mean do you think it's going to be one of the big drivers in, in years to come or it's going to remain more of a visiting friends and relatives and business as it was mainly until now i am pretty much optimistic but you know development of uh, tourist traffic is very simple you you mentioned soccer uh, championship if you've got decent infrastructure you definitely will have some people visiting you if you don't have any infrastructure you can talk about that for decades Nobody is going to be uh, with your uh, sightseeing on whatever you can offer. And I, I tell you, just 20 years ago, in most of the cities outside of Moscow, you simply cannot find a decent hotel to stay. That's why nobody uh, was actually looking for that, because uh, when you've got a holiday break or if you've got weekend break, you don't expect yourself to be fighting for fighting uh, finding hot water or i don't know decent food or whatever <laughs> you are selecting destination where you are pretty much sure that you just jumped out of plane and will have fun for a couple of days and fly back travel within russia till very recently was a sort of different kind of safari Mm -hmm. and uh, not many people are willing to take this type of adventure yeah i see what you uh, mean yeah i've been traveling around my country more than many most of my compatriots and uh, i know what i'm talking about it 20 years ago but not uh, that long ago in 1999 in the city of novosibirsk major cultural and scientific center of former Soviet Union, there were zero, zero hotels which could be described like four-star hotels. So, yeah, so it... I, I, I've been witnessing uh, how the hospitality industry was developing in, in Russia, and I, I will tell you very slow. It was very slow development, but uh, thanks God, we, we've got now a much better situation. Mm -hmm. And actually, all major cities has got pretty good facilities in different categories. So you can find reasonably good tourist hotels. We, we've got four and five stars hotels in most of the big cities. And 
I actually think if we will have modern ways of accommodation quickly developed, probably because of pandemic situation, uh, like Airbnb and something like that, that can create much better uh, and much quicker development of domestic travel and domestic tourism. And most of these people will fly because the road... It depends. It depends. Uh, just like before pandemic, last autumn, uh, my wife and I and the uh, family of my friends made a car trip to another uh, location. Uh, it's uh, almost 500 uh, kilometers outside of Moscow. It was, it was amazing, actually. And accommodation was fine. Food, food was uh, excellent. We played in some club over there. So we've got a fun evening one, one night. So it's actually very good. And uh, if we are talking about Moscow, uh, around Moscow with these, uh, I would say, between 500 and 1,000 kilometers, we've got a couple of dozens of uh, very interesting destinations. They should be flown for sure, uh, because uh, it's a, a bit too far for, for driving. Yes, indeed. But I anyway, think... Yeah, it, yeah. It, uh, it's a very interesting to see what, uh, how, how the, the tourism industry develops in Russia, because I, I think that's one of the, one of the sectors uh, has big potential, at least as far as I have seen in, in my travels. Just to, to wrap it up, I wanted to ask you, you're, a, you're an engineer, uh, you have worked in aircraft design. What's your take on the Russian airliners? Uh, we have uh, right now a program that is producing aircraft already and in service. That is uh, the Superjet. Then there is one coming up that is the MS-21. That it, it should come up, I think, next year already, by the end of it next year, if I'm correct, if there are no delays. And then there's one even farther into the future that it looks like it's becoming increasingly doubtful, but still there, which is the long-range, long-haul airliner with the Chinese. What do you think is going to be the landscape in, uh, in a few years' time? Particularly interested in the prospects for the MS-21. We actually discussed it here in this podcast with a um, friend of mine, Addison Shondan, that runs Air Insight in the U.S., and, and we were, well, he's much interested in, in the prospects for this aircraft, and we talked about it a little bit, but I, I would like to know your opinion as well on the prospects for the MS-21 and potentially for the, uh, also for the, the future Russian-Chinese long-range long airliner and, and the Superjet that it seemed to have been a bit not as successful as expected originally. Let's try to make it simple and not to overburden people who listen with the technical details. Sukhoi Superjet is a previous generation aircraft designed by organization and people who are mostly has got no experience of designing a civil passenger aircraft. At the same time, at the start of desi design process for this aircraft, there was wrong marketing assumption that regional planes will be in high demand for a very long period of time. Uh, unfortunately, its uh, assessment proved to be wrong for all regional aircraft manufacturers. And we know what happened with Bombardier, we know what happened with Embraer, and which were looking very promising at the moment when Sukhoi Superjet was launched. 
I mean in early 2000. Another complication was that this group of people who never been dealing with the civil aircraft design, because Sukhoi is not a Lushan or Tupolev who, who's got some experience, decision was made to make it international cooperation project. And it was actually first attempt in, uh, in Russia to be an integrator of a large number of systems from different uh, suppliers, starting from engines, avionics, all aircraft systems, and major um, systems like uh, landing gear, for example. So all these factors, unfortunately, play, uh, and another factor, company was not able to organize mass production of these planes. They always claims, uh, claimed that they've got not enough orders, but in reality, they, they've got all planes they managed to manufacture flying with, uh, with real customers, mostly in Russia, but also outside of Russia. So a number of uh, wrong assumptions and I would say objective difficulties resulted in very slow production rate. The peak of production rate was achieved 24 aircraft per year, uh, but typically they manufacture less than 10. And uh, it's, it's not enough for, for, for actual market invasion, I would say. So currently we've got something like 180 aircraft operational. I heard that one of the issues was the post-sale support. Look, Sukhoi and the civil aircraft of Sukhoi GSS is ex uh, or military or ex-military uh, manufacturer. They've got no idea how these how to maintain aircraft in, in civil service. The systems they introduced was very different from what we've got in civil aviation uh, globally. So it's failed because it was uh, wrong from the very beginning. So it hardly can be uh, named as success. Look, in history of uh, aviation and the history of civil aviation, were more successful uh, aircraft, less successful aircraft. They, sometimes they were simply dreadful uh, aircraft. Nothing dramatic in that. Uh, on the other hand, the MS-21 is very promising and it's uh, not previous generation design, it's actually next generation design. And uh, people from Irkut Corporation and former Yakovlev Design Bureau, and Yakovlev has got experience with passenger planes in Soviet times. They're trying to achieve actual high performance and uh, being actually innovative in different areas starting from size of passenger cabin uh, to lightweight construction lightweight design of the wing other airframe elements so hopefully they will manage to to be more successful on the other hand uh, there is a actual challenge in uh, producing these aircraft look uh, airbus is producing 40 to actually 50 narrow body aircraft per month and this is actual serious production when you are selling hundreds of uh, aircraft you've got a chance to find remedies for all teasing problems all initial initial uh, flaws in designs and systems integration and 
So uh, if you are building a couple of aircraft uh, a year, it's totally different way of uh, dealing with aircraft. Because you mentioned this, uh, what, how they call it, after-sales support, or uh, as we call it, uh, flight worseness. You have to have spare parts. If you've got dozens of aircraft flying, you hardly can expect that you, your suppliers, tire one and tire two, will build spare parts in hundreds. If they are building spare, uh, spare parts and system in dozens, they will cost like they are made of gold. So mm -hmm. it's everything yeah. inter interconnected. Another, another uh, problem for all manufacturers around the globe, they are developing aircraft for decades. By the time they start flight test, these aircraft are obsolete. They are actually from previous generations. Yeah, yeah. And cost, costs of this development are escalating ridiculously. You know, it's actually a lot of fun. In, in 60s and 70s, five Russian uh, design bureaus and five American design bureaus build prototype aircraft virtually every year. And yeah. every second year, one of these prototypes was placed into series production. And costs were, I, I'm reading a book right now about Lockheed, costs were three orders of magnitude less, simply uncomparable. But now, if you don't have five billion US dollars and 10 years for development, uh, you, you're simply not going to talk to your yeah. clients. It's yeah. ridiculous, trust me. Yes, I, I, actually yesterday I was talking with a, a company, um, it's gonna be in the podcast soon as well, uh, that are working on hydrogen propulsion. Yeah, we were talking about this, about how once you have all the system in place, it's very costly to change. So now if you want to really change the technology, there's it's not just the technology must work, but the whole ecosystem built around that, that needs to, uh, to move and that's very slow. Even if, uh, you know, now lots of people working on these electric and hydrogen designs, but, but there's all the backlog of the current technology that's gonna be around for, for decades in, in principle. So it's an interesting situation in the coming years. What, you know, as we move into these uh, disruptive, technologies, how this transition is going to happen. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's actually a big talk and uh, it's a, a quite different subject, but uh, probably not for this podcast. But uh, look, uh, uh, a guy uh, whose name was Ben Rich, who was Lockheed Martin boss and skunk work uh, division, developed and built for flight test two absolutely revolutionary new technology planes called F-117, the first stealth fighter. Two planes for 14 months for 34 million US dollars. It's absolutely new technology. Nobody has got experience of doing that. They made all everything. They, they built two real full-scale prototypes for these fighters within 14 months for 34 million US dollars. That happened in uh, 1974. 
But with all inflation uh, and uh, everything, you understand 34 million yes. US dollars yeah. cannot transfer in 8 to 10 billion US dollars currently, which is typical price tag for developing simple passenger airplane. Because compared to these first stealth fighter, building wide, wide body planes like uh, these uh, nine, nine, six, nine, or I, I can't remember what they called Russian, uh, Chinese wide body. Yes. Uh, it's not I, a big task. It's actually for normal aircraft designers and normal aircraft designing company. It's a task for five years. I would say one billion US dollars will be uh, a, a sort of healthy <laughs> suggestion. But that, and, that project that doesn't have a date yet, right? I mean, it's oh, yeah, sometime in it, the next it's decade. For, but... It's frozen. Mm -hmm. I've heard it's, it's frozen for for time being. It's a pity, actually, because we must train Chinese designers to master and manage all designing and building all types of aircraft because I've got impression that pretty soon they will be manufacturing all flying aircrafts like they are manufacturing all electronics right now or, or all clothes and almost everything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So well we'll see. Um, I'm gonna post a link on the, in the show notes, because in the last edition of the Max Air Show, there was a mock-up of this uh, projected airplane uh -huh. uh, with a cabin. It's just a mock-up, but um, you could visit it, and they were showing it around. So yeah, quite quite interesting. But uh, yeah, well, I think we we've co we've covered lots of ground. There are so many things happening in Russia, and I think we still left some out of the table. But <laughs> I think um, yeah, I think that's that's been a great conversation to get really an update about all the the hottest things taking place now in the in the russian commercial aviation industry if someone wants to know more about the conferences that you manage and the websites you manage uh, where should they look you mentioned uh, rusaviainsider.com mm -hmm. yes i'm going to post and ato.ru it's a major uh, Russian language uh, site. And uh, events.ato.com or uh, .ru. Conferences, the site for conferences are both uh, Russian and and has got a lot of information. Very good. I'm going to put the links on the notes anyway. And uh, hopefully, yeah, if uh, there's some people that are listening to us that are interested, then uh, go check them out because there's yeah, information uh, there. And actually, uh, I, I don't know if it makes sense or not. You can put my email anywhere. In any case, everybody knows that. Mm -hmm. So you can write me and I typically answer. So why not? Mm -hmm. Very good. So thank you very much, Boris. It's been a real pleasure. Oh, it was a pleasure, actually. And if you will think about something else, just give, give me a call and uh, we will do that. Thank you so much. Hopefully speak thank, with you. Thank you. Thank Bye. You. And one more thing before you go. Remember, you can subscribe to the Oplane Podcast on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and many other platforms. If you like this podcast, please do not hesitate to give it a good rating or to recommend it to a friend. See you soon.